Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Team Human is commercial free and supported entirely by listeners who get access to our bonus content, Discord channel, and special events. One of those special events is coming up on Friday, August 6th at 1 p.m. Eastern in our Discord audio lounge, a special salon with our recent guest and author of Web of Meaning, Jeremy Lent. So please join Team Human players like Carla Silverstein, Catherine Cunningham, Lucas Matalich, Lisa Hart, and Michael Walerski, who are keeping this show on the air by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we stimulate a cultural immune response to the viral madness, a desensitization to the phantom triggers, and re-entry to emotional, cognitive, and dare we say it, spiritual coherence. It's not too late for us to get it together. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, author, activist, and my friend, Naomi Klein. So I think it's all part of one ecology. <laughs> and the more we see the connections between the kind of data-based extraction and earth-based extraction, if you will, the better off we'll be. Naomi will be engaging with me about media and society on the occasion of winning the Media Ecology Association's Neil Postman Award for Career Achievement in Public Intellectual Activity. You're in the right place at the right time to turn this thing around. This is it. We're all on Team Human. So how you doing? I'm okay. I mean, it, uh, it comes in waves. Uh, a friend here, a co-worker there, they get curious about a conspiracy theory or another one until they follow one too many trailheads and they end up over the edge. It's a casualty 
of living in disorienting times, I tell myself, and it'll eventually pass. But the hardest part is when people I've traditionally looked to for their brilliance and insights, when they fall into the paranoid trap, they, they leave me wondering you know, how it could happen to people, to people smarter than me. You know, as, as Kurt Anderson, the, the journalist, he tweeted over the weekend, this is a quote, he said, strangers turning en masse these last decades into crazed crackpot conspiracy theorists has been bad enough. But an educated, talented, funny, sweet, cosmopolitan old friend plunging into that abyss is a really disturbing, depressing invasion of the body snatchers experience. And I think I know who he was talking about, a, a mutual friend of ours. And I know we're not alone. You know, many of us have been mourning the loss of some of our sweetest, smartest, weirdest, wonderful friends to uh, extremism. I would say extremism on both sides. But right now, I really am just referring to the side that we used to call Q or alt-right and is now settled into a, a widespread belief that the compromises required to live together in society are an affront to human liberty. Yes, most of these people still do believe that Trump is returning as president sometime this month, that Biden lost the election, that Obama and the other Democrat operatives hacked the voting machines remotely from Italy and Germany and that COVID was developed intentionally in the lab and that most versions of the vaccine are laced with nanobots and that a global pederasty ring is about to be revealed and certain factions in the military are ready to take over when they get the signal. But these beliefs are not really the part that's so distressing to those of us on the more conventional side of reality. Now, the disturbing part, at least to me, are not any of the particular fantasies that they're hanging on to, but the the stiffness and intransigence of it all, the the angry, dogmatic manner in which all of this gets expressed and defended. There's never a lack of sarcasm or, or a reluctance to, to twist the knife. It's never, oh, I fault President Biden for, you know, it's always, of course, a bumbling deep state crony like Biden would. It, it's, it's, there's never ever an assumption of good faith on the part of anyone making choices on our behalf. And worse, when I call out a possible logical or historical inconsistency in one of the narratives, the believer becomes defensive to, to the point of being enraged. And it reminds me less of a political extremist, right or left, than an addict defending their habit. And that's why I think 
I may have been wrong to categorize this as a cult phenomenon rather than as an addiction. For sure, there are cult-like features in the fandom of Trump and QAnon, but there's a point at which even a cult member can be swayed with logic or interventions or the failure of the cult leader's prophecies to come true. I've engaged with many, many cult members, and their demeanor is different. They spend more time trying to get me to join the cult than defending their beliefs against contradiction or their right and obligation to defend those beliefs. They're usually not so actively angry, but pacified and complacent. After all, they found the truth. They're smiling, not griping or complaining that their griping's been deplatformed. I've got a lot of friends now asking, you know, and I've asked myself, how could someone so smart have come to believe this stuff? But when you look at it through the lens of addiction, the question no longer makes sense. I mean, do you ever ask, how could someone so smart have become an addict? No, because addiction is triggered and, and it's maintained by a whole different part of one's physical and emotional makeup. If anything, the addiction it enlists the person's intelligence to maintain the supply of drugs and the justification for rejecting any effort to help them. And so what, what are these people? What are they addicted to? It's not the Q myth. It's not Trump. And it's not any particular club or narrative. They're addicted, I think, to staying online and reading and scrolling until they get that little dopamine rush that comes from connecting one dot to the other. Fauci to China to Gates to COVID to Epstein. Ah, ah, ah. It's delightful. It makes temporary sense. And then if they post the idea, it gets a few hits and likes and comments from others and ding, ding, squirt, squirt, another hit of dopamine, another and another and another. So if you challenge the narrative or try to bring them back to sense, then you're not just undermining the story, the the politics or the ideology, but you're undermining their justification for staying up all night to make those connections. I mean, if we're genuinely threatened by, by Soros or Hillary or Fauci and the deep state, there's ample justification for sacrificing sleep and friends and work, right? One's mental health for that greater cause. Imagine if you could justify taking a swig that way, right? I got to take this swig because Soros and Hillary and Fauci are going to take over the world unless I take another swig. And that's what also explains the belligerence with which these people, the people depending on the anti-stories, defend themselves. They don't just defend their narratives. They defend their right to research and to assemble and to believe and spread them. Your intervention becomes grist for the mill. It becomes part of the conspiracy and fuel for the addictive cycle. For this activity, this process, this is the addiction that they're so desperate to maintain. And true believers on the left and social justice extremes, they have their own problems, for sure. I know many well-meaning but under-informed activists who are more interested in prosecuting whoever they're told is the oppressor than learning about colonialism, post-colonialism, theories of change, why Martin Luther King turned his attention to class struggle or the neoliberal roots of today's nonviolent protest movements. But we don't lose friends to social justice in quite the same way. And there are 
pro-market and, and pro-hegemonic people on the other side of the ideological spectrum for them to argue against, those folks that we used to call conservatives. Now, these conspiracy obsessives are different. They're, they're addicts, pure and simple. But addiction, it doesn't occur in a vacuum. Like most addicts, deep down, they are especially sensitive human beings. They're just responding inappropriately to the pain they're experiencing in their environment. And these days, that doesn't just mean their family, but our whole society. That's why, you know, when I read their their posts and articles, I try to ignore the superficial, incorrect facts in order to hear the, the texture and sense of the distress that's fueling them. And what I hear them saying is that the human soul is withering under the weight of an increasingly atheist technocracy that between digital technology's perfect memory and capitalism's ruthlessness, we're all being turned into thought criminals and jobless workers. Q's global pederasty narrative, I mean, that's a great metaphor for life under international neoliberalism, how we're infantilized and shafted simultaneously by godless billionaires. The real point was that Americans need to wake up to the corrupt global system, the military-industrial complex we're tacitly supporting. If we really saw how it operates, we would be horrified. This is what Q people call the Great Awakening. You know, likewise, COVID may not have been released intentionally by friends of Fauci in a Chinese lab, but it's at the very least a symptom of a highly technologized, interconnected world that lacks the transparency required to keep us safe. Governments hide necessary information, the media is an entertainment business, and our health departments seem more committed to manufacturing consent for their vaccinations than accurately conveying the risk-reward ratios for all the various activities in which we might want to be involved. Now, addicts, they're very often just the canaries in the coal mine. Their, their belligerence usually just masks the tortured, vulnerable, and desperate person underneath. They're addicted not because the substance they're taking works, but because it does not really work. All that our seemingly unreachable friends are trying to do is make some sense of a world that's not functioning sensibly. Why would so much of the world be business as usual if climate change were real? Why would homes on Miami Beach be selling for millions of dollars if that property were really going to be underwater in a decade? Why is the stock market going up during a global plague? Why are all our computers made in China if they're the ones spying on us? Nothing makes sense. And the most vulnerable among us, they've become addicted to the, the temporary provisional sense-making online as a substitute for the real thing. So what can we do to help them? Well, we can begin to acknowledge the inconsistencies leading people to fall into the abyss. Things are not going well, and we're all a part of the problem. Every time we buy a cheap t-shirt, we're supporting slave labor and putting someone out of a real job. Every time we drive a car when we could walk, we're contributing to both climate change and oil wars. Every time we move to a better neighborhood to ensure quality education for our kids, we're perpetuating a classist system that denies privileges to those without money. Every time we let our leaders convince us that invading some other countries in our best interest, well, we kill people, including our neighbor's children who were sent to those wars. 
These connections are real, and that is, to be sure, on us. But just as the czar used anti-Semitic fantasy protocols of the elders of Zion to distract people from the real crimes of his regime, Trumpists, they're using these new conspiracies to distract people from their own kleptocratic corruption and efforts to reinstate mobster rule. That's just the cynical exploitation of a widespread mental health problem. So yes, QAnon gives people, as guilty as the rest of us, an excuse to feel superior and enlightened, as if tweeting mutual disdain for child sex traffickers somehow absolves them of their association with the rest of humanity. They think their messages will slowly brace us for the inevitable comeuppance, the great awakening that reveals how everything's connected and how the governments of the world have been united in an effort to extinguish the human soul through sexual programming vaccinations, media hypnosis, and online censorship. In other words, they're fighting a war to defend this very obsession with reading and posting crazy stuff on social media. Those of us back here in reality, we have to work together to enact a gentle awakening for our friends and loved ones who've gotten addicted to this video game. There is no man behind the curtain, no secret cabal controlling our destinies, no marvelous or nefarious plan driving COVID, vote counting, or global affairs. They need to waken up to something way more frightening than politicians eating children. Shit just happens. No one is in charge and chaos reigns. There really is no scapegoat. Never was. The only way through is to find ways of coming together instead, one step and one day at a time. Okay, so this recording is a little special. I first met Naomi Klein in... I guess around 2001, shortly after uh, the 9-11 tragedy, uh, we got invited, she and I and Mark Crispin Miller, the NYU professor of propaganda and media, we all got invited to do a panel discussion thing at Smith College about 9-11 and how it was going to change media or censorship or openness, something like that. And I mean, it was just great to meet her. We were both gosh, 20 years younger at the time. And we stayed in touch after that. We did a, a bunch of different things together. She went, you know, over these last 20 years from being Naomi Klein to being, you know, Naomi Klein. She wrote On Fire, This Changes Everything, and The Shock Doctrine. And she really pivoted her media and cultural analysis to the most pressing issue of our time, which is I think anyway, the collapse of our environment and its impact on the, the poorest among us. And I regularly turn to her for counsel and inspiration. And I guess I like to think she thinks of me the same way. And the occasion of this recording is she won this award. I actually won the first one. It was after Neil Postman died. Neil Postman, the great media theorist and really one of the founders of the whole field of media studies, the author of Technopoly and Amusing Ourselves to Death, teaching as a subversive activity, a whole lot of very important stuff. And uh, after he died, they decided to give out an award 
for career achievement and public intellectual activity. So someone who's kind of been out there fighting for something for a while. And um, I got to win the first one, which is amazing. His, his son was there and his wife and, and his daughter was there. And, you know, it was this super honor. And, and after you win it, you get to kind of be on this committee to help pick um, the next one. And so um, I, I had some influence, hopefully, I guess, in it. But um, everyone was really happy at the idea of uh, giving it to Naomi Klein, who certainly had a, a massive and important career in public intellectual activity. And usually the person comes and does a talk to accept the award, but um, Naomi has a, a family illness she's been dealing with. So instead of her doing a talk, they decided to have uh, me and her do a like a fireside chat, a conversation about media and culture in this moment and Neil Postman and intellectual activity and all that. So um, this is a recording of that conversation that uh, we had last month for the Media Ecology Association uh, 2021 virtual convention. So here's me and the great Naomi Klein. Hi, Naomi Klein. Welcome to uh, the Media Ecology Association Convention, and congratulations on being chosen as the winner of what I believe is the most important award, the the award named for the founder of this Mm -hmm. whole organization, the Neil Postman Award uh, for uh, Career Achievement and Public Intellectual Activity. Uh, I was honored. I got to be the first winner of this thing, you know, 10 years or so ago when, when Neil passed. And um, I love this award because it's, it's, it's academics giving the award, but it's for public intellectual activity. It's for, you know, our, uh, the ability to actually uh, initiate and sustain uh, rigorous conversations over time in public forums and actually elevate, uh, elevate the, the conversation, which so you've been doing since what the twenty seven years ago that that no logo was published. When was that? Uh, well, first of all, thank you, uh, thank you, Douglas. It's so good to be with you, and I want to thank um, everybody for this award, which is such an honor. And yes, uh, I, I, and it's certainly my first career award. Anything having to do with a life, <laughs> I think this is might be a one of those moments. Um, <laughs> and, and, and Neil Postman's work was very important to me when I was writing No Logo. Um, mm. Not not 27 years ago, quite. I think mm. um, it, it came out in 2000. So it's always easy, oh, easy really? to keep track of. Yeah. 21, oh, yeah. 21 years ago. Great. Came out just at the cusp. It was at the printer uh, during the Seattle 1999 uh. protest, but it actually officially came out in January of 2000. And, um, but I had, I, I was writing before in Canada. Does that count? Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> for, for a full decade before No Logo, yeah. I was writing. Um, and yeah, thank you. I mean, it's a great. Uh, it's almost great to even think about No Logo in the context of, in the media ecological context, because in some ways, what you were doing was saying. I mean, to me anyway, we're saying that these products are media that at this point they're these brands are not yeah. just things that sit on there and they create entire environments mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly yeah no that was kind of what that book was tracking was that moment when it flipped to become the environment um that it wasn't like hitching a ride on our culture 
um, putting the ad on uh, on the media, but we are we want to envelop you, whether it's the Nike Superstore or Celebration Florida, um, or you know any you know this was the era when like Starbucks made had a magazine called Joe. Do you remember that? Uh-huh. <laughs> Every, they, were, they were tired of, of 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 just pressuring magazines to do advertorial. They wanted to like have the whole thing, or like O magazine, um, humans being super brands. And I remember talking right. about it with my parents, where they were like, "Is this really different? Like, isn't it all just like advertising crap?" And it's like it's a subtle difference. They want to. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, well, and by the way, Neil Neil got it. You know, he he yeah. he 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 really liked no logo, and he I, I didn't know him well, but he did invite me as a as a very young writer to to come up to. They used to have a retreat of the fact his NYU department mm-hmm. in uh, somewhere in upstate New York. Yeah, and that's the parent to this organization. Yeah, the the media ecology retreats that he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so exciting. I mean, it's interesting because there is a history to it. I mean, you know, John Wanamaker made the the bridal shop, or or it's actually that uh, was Frank Baum who designed the the different departments, and he wanted each department in the Wanamaker store to be like a separate little world. So mm-hmm. you'd walk into the bridal bridal section and you'd see the mannequins with every piece of bridal wear and you'd feel incomplete if you didn't have everything the little bag the book the thing but by the time you walked out so it it kind of started but but the 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 turn that you're talking about is also the way that that instead of speaking about brand attributes like this is not a sh- Nike sneaker's not a shoe this is the spirit of can do itism, or something. It was about transcendence. <laughs> um, it, uh, transcendence through sports. Yeah. Right. But then each of these brands sort of had their own thing. They each claimed another aspect of, of <laughs> human experience. But there started to be overlap fairly quickly. <laughs> right. Um, because there aren't, aren't that many you know, aspirational qualities that you can lay claim to. So Apple, yeah, in this age was like revolution, being, thinking different. And then um, Starbucks was the idea of the third place. It was like the public square, essentially. They said, not home, not work, Mm. (laughs) where we gather to have intellectual conversations. um, and, And then I think Branson got it earlier than most in that idea of like, this is an entire cocooned world. Um, I think there's a quote from him in No Logo where he talks about, um, you know, just the earlier era of CEOs riding on somebody else's plane, eating somebody else's food, whereas he was going to have the truly coherent experience, right? He was going to be drinking a virgin cola on a virgin jet, you know, mm-hmm. going to a Virgin Island or whatever. Um, but that's the dream. It's the dream of being brand cocooned. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting looking back on it because, you know, and, and you and I have talked about this before, but the idea of individuals being brands was mm-hmm. still pretty new. Like Michael Jordan had declared himself the first super brand and Oprah right. was a super brand and she had the O magazine and, and they were selling their lifestyle to us. Right. 
and it's sort of a it's faux a magazine. Yeah, I remember yeah. you saying, "And what are you, is this? A, it's a magazine." Where Oprah's on every cover. It's like, every, what is every. that? It's not looking through her eyes. It's looking at her. It's like, what is that? It's not a sensibility anymore. It'd be like New Yorker magazine with just a picture of the Empire State Building at every cover. You know, it's like what in a different outfit, right? What is that? But the other thing, you know, that that so that's the way we're talking now is the way I originally was attracted to and understood your stuff as a media thinker, McLuhan fan kind of guy. But then there's this other whole thing in your work that, uh, that's, that's equally, if not more important and that I didn't get until, until I found you, which is not only do, does, does all this media and all this fabrication create a cocoon around us and change our nature to the product, but it ends up creating an environment where the product can go be made by slaves in Sri Lanka that we don't see. That <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It hides the sort of the whole Jack Welch era of outsourcing production to something else so that Nike is no longer a shoemaker. They are a shoe marketer. I mean, for me, the click when I was like, okay, this is a book, this is not like a long article, was I, before I wrote No Logo, I was um, actually like a youth, I was a youth columnist. I was a mm-hmm. token youth columnist in, in, <laughs> in a newspaper in Canada, the Toronto Star. Mm. And um, I, you know, when I got the job, I think I was like the youngest ever columnist that they had hired. And I was like the decoder of the youth things, you know, I had read all your books. And I was like, Mm. you know, I am token youth, you know, they weren't giving jobs to young people. It was like the 90s, it was a recession, you could get a column, you could be a token youth. And so that was my job. And so (laughs) as my role as token, as token youth, I was writing about kind of pop and politics, you know, where, where, where culture and politics meet. Um, And but I started writing also about young people as workers. And, and so I was writing about the Mick job, the sort of trivialization of work for our generation. And that kind of led me to, to do more labor writing. And so I started writing about, about where our stuff was being made, the stuff that was being marketed to us. So writing about marketing and labor. Those were kind of my two beats, like the marketing mm. to youth and the kind of jobs that we youth were being right. offered and how our stuff was being made. I didn't see them as connected. I didn't see those two issues <laughs> as connected until I just sort of had a moment where I I think I was reading Tom Peters, which mm-hmm. I would do sometimes um, to understand <laughs> what was going <laughs> on. The other side, yeah. Yeah. And he had, I forget which book it is, but he had he would often write in all caps um, the people who don't know Tom Peters, he was like the, the management guru of the 1990s. And in all caps, it, 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 this was the advice he was offering to corporations at this time. You're a fool if you own it. You're a fool if right. you own it. And, and he was talking about factories uh, and that your, your goal, your business model is find your idea, find your brand, find your meaning, and then float off into the ether, divest yourself from right. the world of things. And so my click was the crappy jobs <laughs> that are being offered, whether it's in the sweatshop in Indonesia, um, you know, or whether it's, you know, the kids making 
Disney products uh, in Haiti, or it or it's um, the Mick jobs being offered to to my generation, or like you can have a column, but you can't actually have a staff job. <laughs> you know, it was all about this idea of this sort of quest for lightness in the corporate world, divesting from stuff because you're right. in the ideas business, you're in the media business. Um, and, and so that click was like, okay, this is a book. This is a, this is a thesis. This is an idea. Yeah. So that, that's, what's that's interesting. Set me on the road. And then, you know, and, and from a media ecological perspective, then the emergence of digital media, if I remember correctly, it in, it engendered this spirit of like 1099ism in America. Like that now that thanks, I remember the original promise of having a laptop is now you can work as an independent person at home with no union or solidarity mm-hmm. or protection yeah. of any kind. Do you know what I mean? It was almost like the, the precursor to the gig economy was this statement of of young people we're gonna we're gonna have some kind of workers' liberation. Yeah, free agent nation. Right, free agent nation. Yeah, yeah, and it was an incredible act of projection too on the part of freelance journalists, right? Where like it is actually as a, as a freelance journalist, if you're paid well, it's a pretty decent lifestyle. But then to right. like project from a desire of a freelance journalist to work in their pajamas to, or work anywhere onto like peace workers in far less, you know, glamorous worlds was, you know, I think it just a tremendously intellectually dishonest exercise yeah. and did a huge amount of damage. And it's happening to this day. I mean, in America, there's this, some kind of a, a jobs employment right to unionize act that many of the freelance writers I know are busy tweeting about how this is bad. Um, it's bad to let, to let uh, uh, you know, home, home care workers unionize. That's right. not bad, but yeah. I understand from a freelance writer's perspective, oh, we're fine. I want to compete. But it, it's strange how that kind of right-wing anti-union sensibility ends up being expressed by people who we thought, who I thought would have known better, <laughs> you know? Although there, that is changing a little bit. Like, I think that, that, that the first stage of it, I think freelance writers were getting, still getting paid you know, well, and now what? I just saw something around BuzzFeed. You get paid if your piece goes viral, like you're, you're paid by the click essentially. Yeah. Um, so I know freelance writers who are unionizing, <laughs> um, but yeah. No, they try. And then sometimes the, the, the company quickly pivots away from whatever it was that was going to, as I've witnessed, that was going to let them do that. I mean, I'm, I'm, very interested in i mean it's i guess it's kind of obvious but in the the way that that climate became so front and center in your work i mean it's interesting when i got to uh queens college my that colleague who hired me there rick maxwell who wrote a book called greening the media mm-hmm. he said he resents the whole idea of using the word media ecology he's like you shouldn't talk about media ecology or media environments because you're co-opting language that really needs to be right now applied to the climate emergency. Mm, interesting. It is. I, it's mm. an interesting... Uh, I don't see I it mean, that way. I mean, I actually think it's helpful that we talk about 
and information ecology and a media ecology, which more and more, I think we're understanding that we have a very toxic media ecology. Mm. We use, we are using all of these words from, from the environmental movement, like even just calling something toxic. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. but I think it's helpful because I, I think that there's just such a direct relationship between how polluted, how toxic our media and information ecology is and our capacity to deal with the fact that our natural world is and all of the natural systems on which life depends are in crisis. I don't even, I don't frankly don't like the, the I don't, I mean, I don't have a problem with ecology, but I don't, I, I, the idea that it's an environment that somehow we're apart from, um, it's all, it's all the environment. We're all, right. we're, we, we, we are, we are part of a living system. Well, right. The climate it. is the, the climate is the ultimate media environment. It's the final, you know, <laughs> we, we are, I mean, Neil would talk about that, you know, that culture is like the stuff in a Petri dish. It's the agar. It's the, the, the thing that grows on a, you know what I mean? That we are the yeah. culture where this mm-hmm. living, growing, replicating thing. Yeah. And I think that, um, I think we should just, we should just make it more porous because there are all of these different sites of extraction, um, to use another sort of mining phrase, um, mm-hmm. in ourselves, our identities, our culture, um, our data, um, but also the, you know, the earth, the atmosphere, that, that they are all intimately connected to what is happening with the digital sphere, right? And, and so, you know, uh, one of the things I do with my students, my students at Rutgers, is uh, their final essay is called um, Seven Degrees of Extraction, where they Mm. take a, um, it could be an app, it could be, um, you know, it could be a piece of of tech, uh, of hard tech, um, and they look at all of the sites of extraction, extraction being defined as a non-reciprocal relationship, one of taking without reciprocating or minimal reciprocation. Um, so looking at that through the lens of like, how is it affecting, um, you know, the, the impact on the neighborhood where, where, where it's mm. produced, how is its impact on the users, its impact on the earth in terms of mining the metals, the minerals, um, its impact on the earth in terms of uh, emissions and, and, and the atmosphere, all of these non-reciprocal extractive relationships. And I see them as all, all interrelated and, or the state, you know, f- uh, extracting from public funding for technology and just taking all of that public mm-hmm. re- research and privatizing it um, and getting all the benefits for you and your shareholders. So I think it's all part of one ecology. <laughs> and the more right. we see the connections between the kind of data-based extraction and earth-based extraction, if you will, the better off we'll be. It's a holistic analysis, really. And I, you know, I was struck listening to, I was listening to an interview with Neil um, around Technopoly, where he would, you know, he, he, as you know, I mean, he, as you all know, because there are other people who are part of this conversation, even though it doesn't feel like it exactly. Um, uh, you know, he, I think one of the big threads of his intellectual life was the need for narrative, the need for a grand narrative of purpose, of mission, um, in education, in media. Um, it's about what we're, what, if we have to know what we're using something for to know if we're using it well. Right. 
And um, he, in some of his later interviews, he talked about ecology and, and not media ecology, but the natural world ecology as providing a potential grand narrative for society that could kind of replace the role that Judeo-Christian religion mm-hmm. had played in American culture um, as, a, as, as a mission, as a, as a, as a story, because we need stories. And I believe that. I really do believe that. Right. And in this case, it's not just a story either. I mean, it's, <laughs> there's, a, there's an actual nonfiction story to be told. This is not, it's not the climate myth that we're going to use to unite humanity. It's, we've got to unite humanity to save the actual real climate. Yeah. But, 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 but stories can be real. Right. Of course. <laughs> um, of course. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I do think that we have, that we have a collective narrative crisis where we have had, and you and I have talked about this before, but mm. like a narrative around no- domination of, of nature and a narrative around a hierarchy or the, 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 um, the, the the great chain of being i was trying to remember what it was called uh-huh. the great chain of being with god on top and angels yeah. underneath and white men underneath that and then you know women and savages and animals <laughs> and trees and rocks at the bottom you know <laughs> and 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 you can just uh dominate and take and 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 um and all can be known and all can be controlled and that narrative is in profound crisis and the ultimate expression of that crisis may be the climate crisis right um but there are other narratives that we can tell that exist in the world as well and have existed for a long time about and about plants and animals being our relatives and us being in relationship with all of life i mean part of the reason why that narrative is in peril or narrativity itself is in peril is because of the the media environment in which those narratives are being told. And the, the the part that shocks me still to this day as naive little cyber boy is, you know, I was aware of capitalist enclosure since the time of the popes in medieval Europe and, you know, enclosure of the land. And then mm-hmm. the, the, the enclosure, you know, the way uh, corporations enclosed certain social spaces and meaning spaces. And I thought that the internet was going to break all that open, you know, because, oh, now we got the people's media, we're all going to connect and, and, fight back against William Randolph Hearst and Rupert Murdoch and those guys. The net was supposed to break this, but it ended up getting enclosed anyway, right? I mean, where where do we do we so then what what's our answer now as you look at at, yeah. at the media sort of systemically? Do we break them up or mm. do we regulate them? Do we remake a commons just to compete with this thing? What what do you see as the sort of the way to create All of the, the above? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do think that there is an all of the above and that they, I think they do need to be broken up and breaking them up doesn't solve the fundamental problem of a business model that's based on surveillance and ad tech. Um, and I think we need to take out from this pandemic that this is essential infrastructure, um, that that this is that, you know, it's it's striking that these companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter all marketed themselves using the discourse of the public square of mm-hmm. a public commons. You know, we're going to be, a, it's going to be a library for all of humanity. Um, information wants to be free. It's the new town square. It's the digital town square. Right. Um, and 
you know, you know that that discourse long predates Facebook, but that's what Facebook said it was, but it's not. It's something very, very different and very distorting um, and very, you know, and, and ultimately re- really dangerous. But the idea is still good. And, and right. so, but we're not going to get it unless we have other incentives. And if we say that it's important, then we need to have a commons-based approach to digital, certainly digital access, but also digital spaces. And it, and it's tricky. I mean, I know that it's tricky because everybody's there. <laughs> everybody's already on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Yeah. And so these attempts to create different social media with different values have, well, not been as, I, mean, I think they've been most effective on the right from what I can tell, right? Yeah. Um, where it's just like a complete free-for-all. But their notion of liberty gets so libertarian, which resonates with those early kind of John Barlow understandings of the net. And I understand how those happen, even in good faith. The, the government was was arresting hackers, you know, Operation yeah. Sun Devil. They, were, they, they seemed to be the enemy. They were going to regulate and Computers and Decency Act. It was like, ah, oh, government, get away. We want to be free. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know. I didn't know. I hadn't read No Logo yet. It hadn't been written yet. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't know that if you get rid of government, that corporations are going to grow. Sort of like getting rid of bacteria lets the fungus, mm-hmm. you know, grow mad. And now we live in a, in a corporate enclosed uh, uh uh, space and and, and uh, a space that's just ripe for for uh, uh, shock doctrine, disaster capitalism. Yeah, which and is I think so- that genuinely. I mean, one thing I like. I remember. I think thinking that it was kind of funny that they were actually going to get us to shop on the internet you know like that it just didn't think like it just it just wasn't gonna work no i didn't think so either i thought (laughs) i I remember they showed me amazon i was like zero chance of this thing working zero chance this is not what the net is for nor wants to sit and buy stuff yeah and you know and it's interesting because you know i think that sometimes we flatter ourselves to tell ourselves that we saw certain things coming and we did but we (laughs) there there were misses (laughs) yeah Big Look, misses. I mean, I wrote a piece for the LA Times thinking about the wrongest I've ever been. Um, I wrote a piece for the LA Times on September the 13th or 14th, 2001, called The End of Video Game Wars. <sighs> Making the argument that that one impact of, uh, of September 11th in New York was going to be that be- because warfare had become so abstracted and, mm. d- and, and we watched the first Gulf War on CNN as a video game war, right? Right. Um, we were being spared from the reality of what it looks like um, when buildings fall and that just the, 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 the corporeal carnage of it, that, that now that, that experience was a lived reality in the media capital of the world, we would never again be able to see war as a video game. Mm. Literally well, can you the say longest the same thing? I've ever been. But, then it, but it makes me want to ask you, though, so now that we have experienced disaster capitalism directly, it's not just happening to black people in New Orleans or Africans somewhere, you know, from Rayovac or whatever, some mean corporation. Now we experienced what is it like when there's a, a terrible COVID pandemic, we're stuck in our homes and corporations come in and become the saviors for public education by by addicting and isolating and and, and in some ways erasing 
five long fought hard years of tech backlashing oh have been seemingly erased overnight. Um, are, I want to write the article now that we've experienced this ourselves, you know, now that, you know, the, the, the tech yeah. domination is over. I, I do think that while there has been enormous opportunism in terms of just accelerating certain things that would have happened like on a five-year time frame that happened kind of overnight around um, remote teaching in universities, um, even even in, in K-12, through although I don't think that that was the plan, but certainly Google Classroom, you know, wanted more mm-hmm. of, a, of, a, of a foothold. Um, certainly, uh, um, uh, you know, cash, the cashless economy and the whole, the, you know, the ability to sort of now see cash as contaminated, and this is a public health issue now. Um, I think the fact that it all, ex- it went faster than these companies actually wanted. I mean, they, they did take advantage of it, but I don't think that they would have wanted it to go this fast because we, in it, in it, in it, in it being introduced overnight, I think we had more, a, a stronger reaction of like, this is bad, this is unhealthy, mm. right? Um, if it had just right, been going we at saw, the same, yeah. Right, we saw our kids over six weeks change dramatically. Yeah. Yeah. So you really, it's like, oh, wow. It's like, exactly. You get to overdose on heroin the first night, you know. So an optimistic take on this is yeah. we've learned how much we need each other. We miss each other. We need touch. We need community. Um, but I think I felt more optimistic about that a few months ago because I also think right. that maybe we underestimated how powerful agoraphobia was going to be. Mm. Where I think I think four four months ago there was more of a sense of oh my god I want to be with people I miss people and now it's like people <laughs> like they're terrifying I don't mm. know how to make small talk I don't know how to be with people anymore um, so yeah I mean I think we just need to do our best to make these experiences as good as possible because the comfort of that that shielding of being able to do so much from home is something that a lot of people don't want to give up. It's also like, you know, we weren't going from like the lovely um, experience of like, you know, the, 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 the town square, small shops, you know, human scale to Amazon. If we right. were going from like Walmart to Amazon, <laughs> Walmart sucks right. too, you know? Right. So, or our kids were going from iPads yeah. in the classroom to iPads at home. You and know, so it's like crowded classrooms and super stressed right. teachers and 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 teaching to the test. Um, so the 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 human in-person experience has to get more human for it to be worth fighting for. Right. And I think that that's something that Neil was trying to tell us um, that we that that was what was happening with education. I mean, some of his writing that was most m- most important to me was his writing about teaching, yeah, um, and the importance of the social, right? Um, that schools That's why it was no longer subversive activities, yeah, right, yeah, it were right. anti-social it re- places, right, right, and then they they stand against the technopoly that way because any you know eye to eye human contact all of a sudden, oh, you know, this is. 
This is the real thing. You know, and then, I mean, another symptom, I mean, you talked about this, maybe not in exactly this way, but another symptom of living in a technopoly is that COVID happens and it's like, it's not occurring to schools to like, why don't we buy some tents to teach kids outside? Yeah. How come that wasn't what occurred to people? It was just, how do we wire this up? How do yeah. we make sure everyone has Wi-Fi? You know, that's so because I, I would mean, argue that's because we're living in that environment. Workbooks to parents, like, like a so that they don't have to figure out how to print out a PDF <laughs> that doesn't isn't even sized properly, and they don't have a printer, and they don't have you know, like. We could have actually gotten people workbooks. Can you imagine that? Yeah. I'm sure they have textbooks in closets somewhere we could have brought <laughs> yeah. out there. No, it was a nightmare. Or people don't have the right printer and you can't get the font or you're on a yeah. Mac and they're on a PC and it's Google this and PowerPoint versus slides. It was a mess, right? A textbook. It Remember those? It was a mess yeah. and it was a lie because it was, you know, my friend Astra Taylor, um, you know, talks about photomation, right? Um, mm -hmm. Of just like, you call something, you 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 call it re virtual school or remote school or whatever, but there's like a mom there. <laughs> and the mom is right. doing all the tech support. And on the other hand, on the other side, there's a teacher who's incredibly stressed out, whose kids are at home too. And all of this gets erased. And it's just, you know, Eric Schmidt saying, remote teaching is wonderful. Right. These are the externalities yeah. for Schmidt, mm -hmm. right? That he doesn't have to, he's not paying for that. Again, extraction. Back to your uh, seven points, seven points of extraction. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. And and I remember Eric Schmidt saying, um, I might have read this in your piece actually yeah. somewhere, something like, oh, everyone's going to love Amazon now. Now yeah. they're going to... I mean, you probably shouldn't he have said that. because he <laughs> said that out loud. He didn't think anyone... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're right. You're going to love sitting at home and having a guy, uh, some black guy in a truck bringing you stuff, letting him be the essential worker getting exposed to God knows what, while you sit at home in your air conditioning watching your Netflix. I mean, the more, the more this, it's it, just, just thinking about talking to you and thinking about, about Neil the past couple of days, it's just been really striking how much mm. this moment was made for Neil Postman. <laughs> Um, yeah. including back, you know, yeah, like Technopoly and all of his warning, because he, he did believe we'd shop from home, you know? And I mean, you know, in the 90s, he was saying, you know, they're saying that we're going to shop from home, that we're going to vote from home. Right. At that stage, we were like, no, not really. It's just going to be fun playing on the internet. You know, they have yeah. no business model. But he, he took them at their word that they would be able to do it. And he was saying, what is that going to do to us? What are the downsides? Right. Um, right. He was looking at like Faith Popcorn and those folks seriously. Yeah. Saying this is going to happen. Cocooning. Mm -hmm. That actually, because he could, he, he, he was open. I mean, I just, I didn't believe it either. I just yeah. didn't believe it. But in amusing, I mean, then you think about the insidious role of Netflix in this moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, just in terms of the social numbing of just, yeah. this is too much. And I'm just going to spend two to three hours a night just checking out and the, and how much we needed not to check out and how much we need not to check out in this moment um, is, yeah, I just feel his, his warnings so, yeah. so powerfully right now. Well, and also, I mean, in amusing ourselves to death too, the, 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 what he understood about the decline of news that once news would become reality television, all would be lost. We'd become untethered. You know, he he really saw that. 
you know, he was only talking about, you know, oh, there's music at the beginning of the news. And he was, I remember him saying, notice there's music. Why is there music at the yeah. beginning of the news? Why would they do that? You know, because he saw it. Why is there color be- in the USA Today? Why are they making right. such fancy graphics? <laughs> right. What's going on here? Where is this going? Right. Mm-hmm. And because he was alive really for when, when, you know, how the West Wing became government and Jerry Springer became politics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like that we, 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 we got the left got lost in this media fantasy and the right kind of took over, uh, well, from The Apprentice onward. It was, yeah. it, it's an interesting changing of, of, of places. You know, you're, you're, Work right now, which is so interesting, is is you know rather than this changes everything, which mm-hmm. is for us grownups, is moving toward now how to change everything, mm-hmm. which is again a very uh, uh, Neil consonant effort uh, that is both uh, 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 social environmental literacy and media literacy, really for for young people, and it's so. Um, it's so hopeful compared to what I hear my daughter. I mean, she's a little older than maybe the target. She's 16 now. But I hear her and her friends talking about, you know, why, you know, kind of why go to college if the world's not going to be here for that long after we're done? Mm-hmm. You know, what's, yeah. they really don't believe they're going to get to live out their natural lives. No, no. <laughs> your your the 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 beauty of 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 your book of how to change everything is that it's you're not telling the story anymore you're giving giving young people uh hope the the hope that comes with autonomy the hope that comes with agency yeah and it's it's i'm also just giving them back to themselves in the sense that most of the hope in that book is just stories of other young people that hopefully they can relate to um, who who shook off that sense of inevitable inevitability and and doom, and did something really amazing. Um, and so you know maybe that's you know a tree planting program in Kenya, and maybe it's stopping a pipeline in North Dakota, or maybe it's starting a school strike at, at you know or a compost program or whatever it is. Um, and those stories are really threaded throughout throughout the book. Um, and because I don't think young people react very well to orders, <laughs> from right. my experience. I actually, I, 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 I did some reading to try to understand why, why I get so little traction with my nine-year-old. There's apparently a condition called pathological demand avoidance, <laughs> PDA. It's like right. an actual diagnosis. I think he has it. Um, uh. <laughs> I think all kids have it, PDA. Yeah. Um, but... And it yeah. could be a survival strategy, yeah, in, yeah, the, in I, this I mean, world. yeah. And I think that, that, that in part, this is where I kind of depart a little bit from Neil's tradition because I was raised by, you know, ex-hippies um, who in the 80s, I was, in, you know, we, we had a culture clash. I was a child of the 80s. They, they, they were sad survivors of the 60s mm-hmm. going, what has happened? How is this my daughter? Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and I felt the finger wave of that generation very, very personally. Like I felt judged and I did mm. not like feeling judged. And so I felt, you know, I think that I, tr- I've, I tried to write when I, when I did write no, no Logo and started writing about these things. And, and, and I, I try to carry it through with climate as I try to write from inside the temptation, not outside. Right. I get it. I'm not, I'm not, 
I'm not going like, what is this junk? <laughs> you know, right. the mantra of my parents, <laughs> you know, growing up. <laughs> What's this dreck? What's this junk? You know, it was like, I like the junk. The junk tastes good. Okay. Uh, but it's still junk. What are we going to do right. about it? You know? It's interesting to to look at, I mean, this is kind of an on-the-spot media ecological analysis of your trajectory, but no logo in some ways is very at home in the television environment. It's a it it happens in the television environment, and you're you're deconstructing the images, you know, yeah. and the beliefs that television creates. Your new work, like like interviewing a 13 year old who who was talk who was celebrating that she and her family were able to strike down the uh, the easement clause for uh, uh, I guess the pipeline um, is is so much about the new sort of more. D- digital media environment's impulse for doing, for mm-hmm. taking action. You know what I mean? If the television, this is straight out of McLuhan. McLuhan would say television was about believing, was about fantasy. Mm. Digital is about is about memory and about action, about doing, actually doing things. Mm. That you're, you're, you've, you've gone from sort of observing society to becoming a, a, a true activist and a, and a teacher of young activists. And it's a... a you know, envisioning a better future is this kind of prerequisite to it, but then it's about actually hands-on. Uh, do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. a, a demonstrating hand, a hands-on approach to all of the same problems you've been writing about all along. Yeah, and it's. I mean, I I think my work in some ways has become less and less mediated, and I really do believe we must. Like, like it's why a lot of what I talk about now is is we we really need a huge new civilian conservation corps or climate conservation mm. corps, and it's because young people need jobs as they did in the 1930s when FDR launched the CCC, hired more than two million young people to plant three billion trees and 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 build 800 state parks. Um, Young people needed jobs in that era. They needed income. And those young people were all from families who were receiving relief as part of different New Deal programs. Um, But, you know, FDR also believed that there were salutary effects of getting out into nature. Um, He believed, you know, he was on the board of the Boy Scouts. um, And he, he believed that. And he also understood that the depression was not just an economic state. It was, it was a psychological and a psychic state. And and I think that, you know, I'm so struck and I'm, I'm I'm sure you have this experience, but like, and, and so many of the people who are, are, are listening to us are, are educators or all of you. I'm so struck by how much my undergraduate students talk about their mental health. Um, Mm. that having mental, like, they, they self-diagnose, you know, almost in the same way that they offer their preferred gender pronouns, you know. Um, and there is a mental health crisis. And I do believe it helps to, to be in nature. And I do believe it, it helps to get away from our screens. We don't have to get rid of them entirely, but we do need breaks. And, and, and we have an ecological crisis. And and what a wonderful thing, way to solve a bunch of problems at once. We need, you know, we, we, we need to rewild the world. We need more carbon sequestering mm-hmm. trees and other forms of vegetation. And young people need community. They need each other. Um, and so 
yeah, I, 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 I believe in it because I, because it's not media. <laughs> I, right. it, it is a lived experience. You know, I, I, I did an, a, a Zoom session with my son's school board about this new book, This Changes Everything. And you know, these were middle school students. And how to Change older. Everything. Yeah, How to Change Everything, the yeah. kids' book um, yeah. and uh, the YA book. And just as an experiment, I just, I just asked them, I said, you know, tell me, some, tell me what you love about where you live. Like uh, in the, something about nature, like something that you love to do, something that's giving you comfort during the pandemic. And they just flooded the chat, you know? Mm. I mean, this, I live in British Columbia, so I mean, what can I, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but it was beautiful. They just, it just poured out their favorite animals, their favorite hikes, mountain biking, paddling, this, that, you know? And, and then we worked from there, right? Like we started in a place of rootedness, love, you know, we got soil under our fingernails mm-hmm. and then it's like, okay, now we can talk about the threats, but why, but, but, um, in, in a way I feel like that's a metaphor for how we need to organize, you know, we need to yeah. organize from a place of love and rootedness and connection and do it for real though. Cause the interesting yeah. thing is when the very things that you're talking about become memes they be, can become really dangerous really fast. So we talk about nature, the return to nature and all that versus media. Well, that somehow gets passed through some distortion of Heidegger into, oh, you know, the Jews and city people and media people and, and lying media corrupting us from mm-hmm. the ground and the land and blood and soil and do not replace us. You know, the, the concern about, you know, Bill Gates and the corporatization of the Great Reset becomes, oh, they're putting nanobots in our vaccines. And, and you and I have both seen some of the, the best minds of our generation you know I mean, fall off mm-hmm. the uh, off the bus into mm. these kind of one version or another of of paranoid conspiracy theory um and and, and irreconcilably uh, uh, uh siloed mm-hmm. i mean and is is this uh, i've always understood it as a as a media effect but until I see the movie, until I go and see Tristan Harris's uh, uh, movie on Netflix, the, the the whatever that was called, the social dilemma, and then I go, oh, this isn't actually the problem. In other words, <laughs> by by articulating it as a uh, a, media, mm-hmm. a technologically determinist, oh, these social yeah. algorithms are pushing people. Out. I was like, oh, so it's not that. So it's almost like, what is this? Is this is this a problem of our of our media environment? This the 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 speed with which people move to the the crazier end and lose the valid critique. There's valid critiques of 9-11 and what happened and our who who how the CIA or our government was involved in in that, you know, by creating a certain a, a situation. There's valid critiques of the Great Reset and the WEF and World Bank's continued uh, uh, you know, lending uh, lending us into you know false hope of of environmental and 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 equality, economic equality. Um, but it, it we seem almost uh, uh, even our allies seem incapable of holding on to the rigorous argument mm. and falling into the the more conspiratorial emotional one. Yeah. And this is, I think, where media education comes in um, and and an analysis of of capital underneath the media. 
um, mm. and where, where media fits in to a broader economic structure. And because we are living through an era of outrageous economic inequality and injustice. And, you know, you've written, I think, so powerfully during the pandemic about this being a period where the rich have just seceded. Um, and, you know, I remember Arundhati Roy writing some years ago about the rich in India really living on another planet from everyone else since kind of secede. And, and now that's literal. Like we're watching during this time of so much pain and hardship, the billionaire class pouring their ill-gotten gains into literally abandoning our planet. And that's just a kind of a showy version of what is right. happening inside the gated enclaves, right, of this planet. And, and so people have a right to be furious and have an absolute a deep sense that something is very awry, because it is. It, and if, 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 if that injustice, if that inequality isn't met with, with, with a structural analysis of capitalism right. and what built these incentives, if we don't understand capitalism, we will end up with cabals. We will right. end up with an analysis of cabals, because that is what is absorbing people's outrage right now, right? Um, and so I don't know that it's gotten our best minds. <laughs> I think it's, it's, gotten, yeah. it's gotten... It's gotten it's some got, of our friends, but... It's gotten... Yeah. Some, <laughs> but if I look at who it's gotten, it's gotten the people who didn't really have the foundation. Right. Um, you know, they, 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 they had the analysis of sort of individual wrongdoing, but the sort of structural foundational right. critique was right. not there. And they always had a libertarian streak. And so they're more inclined right. to believe in the conspiracy and the cabal. And so it's a moral responsibility to provide that structural critique of capital, or we will lose right. more and more people to the conspiracies. And we can't just blame it all on Facebook, although they're making it worse. Right. And that's, and that's you know, where, where you and Neil have something truly in common. And what I got, um, not at first from, from Neil, I mean, as a young media theorist, loving the internet, it was so tempting to stay in the abstracted, I'm going to deconstruct Beavis and Butthead and show mm -hmm. this and that, you know, and play and get mm -hmm. right. And, and there's an attraction, I think, for many to media ecology because it gets so philosophical and heady and you could do, let's do the media ecology of the I Ching, let's do the media ecology mm -hmm. of kite flying, we'll do a, of that and that. But until really I met you at Smith it, right after 9-11, you and Mark Crispin Miller and, and such jolly on a, on a panel, I was like, Oh man, there is a structure. There's a whole structural thing. The, the Neil got there through the other word you used, moral. There was a moral yeah. sensibility at the core of what he was doing. He refused to move over to the sociology. You know, the social sciences make everything legitimate, right? Because they have numbers. And he was like, no, he wanted to stay. And he always said that the real, the, the ultimate weapon against the technopoly was spirituality, was yeah. religion. You know, that <laughs> you you hold that. So when you bring up morality and structures of capitalism it's like i i feel like it's it's a it's a call to us in the media ecology movement who movement if we are such a thing in the media ecology world to 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 not to take up arms but to uh uh 
invest what we're doing with the rigor of structural analysis mm-hmm. and with the power of uh, of moral assertion. Yeah. You know, because the tools we have as media ecologists are so powerful. They're such powerful analytic tools for understanding what's causing what to whom and to see the 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 feedback mechanisms at play. But without, you know what I mean? Without the real environment informing our media environment without the real climate informing our cultural climate you know, without uh, uh, morality informing our intellect. Yeah. And I mean, it's something else that I did. I mean, I, although I did talk about the not loving the finger waving position that I absorbed from my parents' generation, I do, I think what I always appreciated about, Neil and appreciate more and more as time goes on is his willingness to just to say something is is to not just critique but actually pass a moral judgment. <laughs> this thing is right. better than another thing, um, and and uh, and there was that le- left I think a lot of room for nuance. Um, it doesn't erase nuance, um, but you still at the end of the day have to be willing to say if something is wrong or evil, right. or harmful. What, uh, um, and yeah, I mean, I think especially in this moment where, you know, I think that the students that we teach are just howling in the face of the injustice that they see all around them. Um, we owe that to them. You know, we haven't protected this generation from a future that is really terrifying and so we have to empower them with these tools. And I think it's that foundation and a moral framework. And it doesn't have to be God. <laughs> um, right. And, and, and this is why I'm, I was interested by Neil's later uh, appeals to ecology mm-hmm. and an ecological mis- mission um, as something that can provide that kind of grand narrative about how we make decisions and assess technologies. It is it is affirming uh, to to know that the generation before us, that Neil's generation was working on was working on this, and really did help set. Uh, uh, he gave us tools and insights and set an agenda, um, you know, for us as we confront, you know, these tremendous challenges today. And I do. I mean, just to end on a, maybe a positive note, I do. I feel like we have this little window um, where we do remember that we miss each other. We do feel the junkiness of getting all of our connection on social media and, you know, Neil's warnings about, as he said, becoming information junkies. Mm. Um, That has never felt more resident to more people. Um, And the difference between just seeking information and seeking meaning um, or wisdom even. Um, and so I think we have a moment where we still remember how bad it felt <laughs> to live so virtually, um, where that can provide some clues about how we actually want to live, which isn't how we were living before this pandemic, um, but is just better than that. Right. And it's so it's so experiential and visceral that People can then sort of restore their own compass in that in that sense. I hope so. Yeah.
Well, thank you. It's so funny. It's such an interesting moment. This is your career achievement and intellectual, public intellectual activity moment, which is why I sort of like it as like, oh, and now what are you going to pass to the next generation? But you're already, you're already involved in that, even as a young woman. So <laughs> it's great to see you started on that, on that enterprise. So thanks so much. Thanks for, for taking the time. I know this is a particularly busy moment for you in, in, in work and home life. And uh, it means a whole lot to us. Thank you, Douglas. Thanks, everyone. This This was really fun. Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today, the terrific author, thinker, activist, and theorist, and my friend, Naomi Klein. Uh, You can find out more about her and all of our guests by going to teamhuman.fm, where you can also click on support to become a paying subscriber and supporter of the show. Team Human was produced by Josh Chaplin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.